You're listening to SAS Nordic, the sassiest podcast in the Nordics. Hi, I'm Daniel. And I'm Thomas. And we are experienced SaaS professionals that are curious about how other successful SaaS companies go to market, scale, build winning teams and great products. Join us on our journey as we speak to Nordic SaaS leaders trying to get hold of their secret sauce. And today's guest is Jesper Fredriksson, the Vice President and General Manager International at Lacework. We're not going to hire the next five people if we cannot make uh, sort of the first cohort or the second cohort productive according to our plan. So the last part of the playbook is uh, is just constantly keeping an eye and evolving your, your productivity plan. Welcome back to another episode of the SaaS Nordic Podcast. And once again, we are really happy that you chose to spend some time with us here today. Especially this time of the year. I know everybody is busy. You're closing the year, closing the quarters, planning for next year. So we appreciate you guys are tuning in. And we have yet another interesting episode here ahead of us. And it's about how you go international. There's actually a way and method to do it, it seems like. Yeah, um, we are really happy to have a very senior person that has done that journey a couple of times uh, and growing uh, some some really big and well-known companies outside their home market. So uh, happy to present Jesper Fredriksson and here we go. Today we are joined by Jesper Fredriksson, that is the Vice President and General Manager International at Lacework. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Thomas. A pleasure being here. It's really awesome to have you here, Jesper. And at least I'm a, I'm a personal big fan of people from the Nordics taking on the world and conquering the world. We love all the Nordic companies, but we also love Nordic individuals doing great things out there. So really great to have you on the show here. And we also like people that record in interesting places. And, and we, we can't help seeing the the Parken soccer stadium, I, I think, behind you here today. Yeah, so uh, I, uh, I have the pleasure of being a board member at a very exciting Danish company called Keep It, a SaaS um, storage company and uh, they have a very cool office here at Parkin, so that's where i am today so yes it is pretty exciting awesome i just want to tell you we are big uh, football fans so we're looking forward to that invite <laughs> i will get that arranged <laughs> yeah, we get a little bit jealous <laughs> yeah now, now that we have that said and that, that you're we, we know you're a board member but what else can you t- tell us about like who is jesper sure so um yeah, I'm Danish. I uh, actually lived most of my professional career outside uh, Denmark. Uh, I've been in, in the UK almost 20 years now, lived in, in Munich for a while. And pretty much all my professional career, I've worked for American tech businesses, helping them scale. So um, for better or for worse, I'm a growth junkie. I love these growth journeys where you you take something that's relatively small and then you help scale it and, and you see it grow. So. Um, that led me to uh, a ton of interesting things. I, uh, I got into the world of SaaS in 2005, relatively early on, joined a startup called Pustini. Uh, we ended up being acquired by Google, so spent a couple of years in Google's cloud division. Um, I ran semantics cloud activities uh, in Europe for a couple of years. And then um, sort of uh, more recent, I, uh, I was part of scaling out DocuSign in Europe. So from the first 10 people to the, the to about 300 people. Um, then I did the same for Okta. Uh, so uh, again, taking Okta from about 40 people to north of 300. And then uh, doing the same thing right now again, now for uh, a security company running purely 
in the cloud and supporting cloud-based customers. Uh, so that's what we're doing at Lacework. So I uh, I believe that no business should ever go buy a physical server. I'm a I'm a I'm a, <laughs> I'm a pure pure genuine believer in in SaaS and and the cloud. We agree. Yeah, yeah it, it sounds like you uh, found your thing. I find my thing. I. I, I, I believe I'm re- re- reasonably decent at it. It it, uh, it, it gives me a, a good living. And hey, I get to travel to cool places and, and work with interesting people. And then as a side note, other than helping American companies scale, I am a board member here at Keep It. Uh, I'm a, a board member of another Danish company called Sideimprove, a $100 million Danish SaaS business. And I'm also on the board of a, a, a SaaS business out of Ireland. So as you can see, there is a SaaS and cloud threat in uh, in pretty much everything I go do. Yeah. Do you have time for anything else? I, I'm an awful golfer. I, uh, I, I do try to, uh, to go out and, and, uh, and have a round. Is that because of a lack of time spent on the golf course or lack of talent? Uh, it's probably both, but, uh, <laughs> but golf is one of these frustrating things unless you have a, a born talent, right? It is a function of the time you put in. Right. Um, I actually gave up golf when I was earlier because I, I got so frustrated, but I think with, uh, as I've aged, I become more relaxed, and now I just love going out and having a nice day out in the sun. And it is what it is. So, uh, uh, other than that, I love go for a run. I love reading good books. I I'm a vivid po- uh, podcast listener, including yours. Um, so, and then follow all kinds of sports. So that's sort of my life. Okay, cool. And in short, uh, what more can you tell us about uh, lacework? Yeah, so lacework. We are a uh, again U.S. based uh, company. We're in. Uh, we are uh, incubated by Sutter Hill. Um, you may have heard of them. They were the guys who sort of uh, founded and, and helped create Snowflake. And basically, we're trying to do a very similar setup in the uh, area of cloud um, security. So we built a, uh, a cloud security-based platform that covers multiple disciplines. It's built and running completely in the cloud. And we basically target a lot of your listeners here, right? So organizations that run their entire business on a cloud-native uh, platform. Um, and the reason why we exist and, and the reason why um, we solve this, this or, or, or the, the way we solve this problem very differently than the existing providers is that the cloud infrastructure is so complex today that you cannot throw people at it. You cannot roll, write security rules. You cannot sit and look at event locks anymore. You have to apply uh, augmented intelligence, um, machine learning. You have to have... You, you just got to automate your way out of this problem. And that's basically what we're building this platform to do, saying install Lacework, let it look at, at your environment for a couple of days. And then we start to understand what's going on here. What does normal look like in your infrastructure? And then we can point out anomalies. We can call your attention. So so that's the problem we're trying to solve. We, uh, we raised a modest $1.8 billion to go and build this company. So we were very fortunate to... Uh, I mean, when you raise that much money, like... What are you? How are you deploying that? That's like it. It must be difficult, or, or maybe not, <laughs> to deploy it quick enough. I don't know. Well, I think that's that's some of the things we're going to talk about here again. Saying how do you do that in a disciplined way? How do you do it in a focused way? How do you do it um, based on a formula, not just uh, sort of throwing uh, people at the problem? So that that's very much. And and again, you can go back in in sort of my last basically ten years. There was the same conversation at DocuSign, same conversation at Okta. Uh, so I'd say the conversation here today is probably more for businesses that are getting to the really scale-up phase. That that's that's some of the experiences I've been through and and the experience we're in right now with Lacework. So uh, yeah, they, 
it makes for interesting choices when, of course, capital is not your limiting factor, but that still means you you got to go make the right choices, right? Right, right. And obviously, just looking at the number you, you, you just mentioned here, the capital you guys have raised, clearly this is a big exercise and big operations. And, you know, we've cheated a little bit in order to prepare for the session. We, we've seen your, you know, over a thousand employees and so on. Like, is, is that true? Is that how many you guys are? And like, wh where do you operate? Everywhere in the world? Yeah, so... Um so our biggest operation is in the U.S. We do most of, or not most of, we do all our uh, engineering work out of uh, out of the U.S. Um, and then we have uh, field operations, sales operations out of Ireland, out of London, out of Paris, out of Germany, out of Netherlands. We have people here in the Nordics, in Denmark, in Sweden. We have uh, a team out in Australia. Uh, and yeah, I think if if LinkedIn is telling you there's about a thousand people, that that's probably not far off uh, reality. And yeah, they are telling us 980. Yeah, there you go. So and you know. they probably know better than I do. So uh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, cool. Uh, are we done with the numbers, Daniel? We are done with the numbers. Let's dig into the main question. Let's dig into the main topic, and we're going to talk about how to prioritize your markets. And as you say, this will be a part of. Um, a scale up context right so it's not so much about if you're going to put that person on the hq or in finland and so we're going to look at on this in, in in a bigger bigger context and you've been a part of docuscience octas and now lacework successful global expansions and you're also involved in the number of SaaS businesses on the board and uh, what is your number one piece of advice that you offer early stage companies when they consider expanding beyond their home market for real um, I think the number one thing I've learned over the years um, is you need to focus. Uh, I think what I see, it's very tempting, especially if you're in a smaller business. And, and here I'm more thinking in the board context. It's very tempting to say, look, I'm going to hire one rep in Helsinki and then I'm going to hire one in Hamburg in Germany and one in Munich. And then I'm going to put uh, one person into Milan and one person in, into Barcelona or whatever. Right. So I want to cover as many countries as possible. That's going to make me successful. And if there's one thing I've learned over the years is certainly in my experience. And, and if you look at most of the successful SaaS scale ops in the world is that's the wrong way of going about it. Um, what what I've come to believe is that you're actually better off saying, what are the markets where we're going to have uh, the highest chance of, of succeeding? That can be because, hey, I'm targeting a certain uh, vertical, for instance, let's say uh, if you are targeting advertising agencies, well, you probably need to be in London, right? You probably need to be in Hamburg. Um, and that's where you should go and, and put the vast majority of your energy, because believing that one individual or two individual in a in a country or in a large market can go and make a difference it's just plain wrong in my experience right you you're actually better off saying if i have 10 resources to invest let's pick one place or two places to go put them and let's put a proper team in more than one sales rep pre-sales support around them customer success around them because the thing is that once you start to get scaled in a given market it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? That once you win more customers, they speak with other customers, they change jobs. You start to get right. You start to get the snowball effect, and and you don't get a snowball effect if you're one or two people in ten different countries around the world. Um, so I think if you go back in in time, I think Salesforce was actually the ones that sort of initially came up with this idea, and, and when they scaled out way way back, like more than fifteen years ago. 
they didn't even talk about countries. They talked about cities in the world. Um, and, and that's what they worried about, saying, if we can do really well in Paris and London, that, that'll be great, right? Those are two, that, that's a population of 15 to 20 million people you can go target in, in a metro area. So, um, so that's, that's my number one recommendation is don't spread yourself thin. Be brave enough to figure out what you're going to bet on. And don't, don't, then go go put uh, most of your energy and most of your investments be, be, behind those priority choices. But what about if you select the wrong markets? How how long time can you sort of put all your efforts, all ten people you have into the UK market? It's a good question, of course, and and so one of the important things. Well, first of all, my other experience is once you leave your home country and go to a new market. It takes longer than you expect and hope. That that's probably my number one lesson, right? No one's heard about you. You don't have the home team advantage anymore. You are you're going up against the local incumbent competitors and so on. So first of all, uh, if you're a SaaS business and you put a new team into a new market and you expect miracles within six months, that's probably naive and and you're probably going to be disappointed. So I think the answer to that question, Thomas, comes down to well. What's the value of the business? Is it, is it an SMB, sort of very transactional quick sale? Then obviously you can start to feel relatively quickly whether you're getting success or not. Yeah. If you're targeting large, complex, big value enterprise sales, you may not know for two years whether you made the right decision or not. So I think the other trick, of course, is then to figure out what are the leading indicators that I will be tracking to at least have a sense of whether I'm on the right path or not. Um, so I, I don't think there's a simple answer to when you know. And what are those uh, leading indicators then? Well, I, obviously the most important one is that can you attract good relevant talent in the market, right? That that have done this before and can help you go do it. Two is whatever leading indicator. Let's say again, if you if you're selling large ticket enterprises, then can you go and have the early stage conversations in those markets, right? Can you get past the first? one or two stages of your sales process, can you at least see that there's there's a positive reception in the market? And by the way, uh, I, I would very rarely recommend that you just wake up one morning and say, we've never transacted anything in the UK, but now we're going to ship 10 people over there. I, I definitely favor a model whereby you've been able to serve a market remote. You've been able to perhaps win a handful of customers over there. You've actually have some degree of, of, of market fit proven in the foreign market, selling out of um, Stockholm or selling out of Copenhagen or wherever you're based. And then at that point, you start to, to go double down. So um, I, I would always try to sell remotely into a market first before I go and, and put a big team on the ground. Does that make sense? I, I think it makes a lot of sense, but it also makes me think about you know, the other side of the coin a little bit. Uh, looking at, at the Nordics and the Baltics here, all of them are, uh, or at least most of them, their domestic markets are way too small and they have to think global from, from the get-go. And I think you're, you're touching on an interesting point here, the readiness, you know, when am I ready to go international? And, and you mentioned here that you, you sell from, the, from Denmark or Copenhagen or wherever it is. But maybe not everybody is has the muscle to put an entire team in place. You know, I put the customer success, the marketers, the support, the salespeople, and so on. Is there no way to have a middle exercise where you send two brave Danish great colleagues to London to, to figure things out? Yes, it's the short answer. But of course, 
my experience is if you have that that tinier team, right, you're you're also running a very large risk at the human level, right? If one of those individuals decide this is not for me or whatever, I want to go home, I miss Denmark or whatever, you're back to square one, right? So I think you also got to be very cautious of the fact that you're not tying your success and your investment in a given market to just one or two individuals because we're dealing with human beings, right? They can they can decide tomorrow that they want to go do something different. Yeah. So uh, of course you you got to go and make this investment that is in line with the with the funding and 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 with your 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 size and uh, evolution. And it, it's probably less about it's less about whether you four people or six people or eight people. It's more about saying let's pick one or two markets initially that we have the highest degree of belief in. And let's go do that. If if we cannot make one remote market successful, why do we believe that we can we can enter ten markets and make them successful by putting one or two guys in a Regus office or in a WeWork office in a remote city? Right. Um, decide where you have the highest chance of of winning, and then go and and put as much energy and as much investment that you can at your given stage behind those. Uh, those projects right i have another question uh, related to this a little bit and how you pick the, the main uh, countries to, to invest in you, you touched upon it a little bit uh, some of the people that we have in our community and that, that we come across no names mentioned but uh, they find themselves at least that's their perspective it's a land grab exercise yeah it is us or the competitor yeah and they're for that reason going everywhere both of them so to what extent should your competition drive where you need to be or should you just ignore that well first of all i think it's always very dangerous to let your strategy and your business be dictated by others i think you should definitely keep an eye on it you should you should learn from it um and obviously hey if if your competitor proves that there is a massive market for something that you do and and you can see they're having great success in the uk a great success in germany that's a great validation because to your your other part of the question, which is how do you pick these markets, right? And of course, if if you can see there is adoption in in the application in the problem that you're solving, that's the best validation you can ask for. So in in my experience, I, I think if you go into a market and there are no competitors, in some ways that's almost scary, right? Because if what you do is so relevant and and so needed by the customers, if you if you're all alone in that market, that's actually not a good sign. So I would I would use the information you can gather on on where your peers in the industry have uptake and i would use that to make uh, prioritizations but actually in many cases i find that you can you can overanalyze these questions in many cases <laughs> right, right? <laughs> because <laughs> the vast majority of what these SaaS businesses solve right i'm, I'm here at keep it we we help you back up your uh, online services like office 365 the need for that service is identical in every single market around the world. Then you're more into uh, more, uh, is there a sort of more focus on ransomware in some countries? Is there more focused on compliance in some countries? And perhaps we should over-rotate to those. Right. But uh, I think in, in sometimes you over-analyze this and then I would revert back to, let's take Europe just, you know that UK is a great SaaS market. You know Benelux is a great SaaS market. You know Northern, uh, Northern Europe is a great SaaS market. You know that the Germans and Southern Europe are slightly more conservative. So I think you can you can actually, without spending a lot of, of, of detailed analysis, come up with a first round of, of, of simple prioritization. That'll be 
90, 95% accurate. Okay, so it's not that hard. Yeah. No. <laughs> Which is good. Uh, but but uh, one thing, I mean, a lot of US-based companies, that they talk about the playbook like, like a magical thing. Uh, so... What does that consist of? What's in the playbook, if you haven't seen one? <laughs> What's in the playbook? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And, and actually, um, so, so Lacework is what we call a playbook company. And, and there is actually a, a, a sort of a, a lineage in, in American technology that came out of PTC. And if you've heard about Medic as a sales process and so on, a lot of the people that grew up in that world subscribed to the playbook. And the playbook, I think, is probably a very sort of American football-like uh, term, right? It, it is about having steps prepared along the way, having very clear game plan for what you do at given uh, given stages. Sort of the way I view the playbook is exactly that, right? It, it means that you actually have a pretty well thought out and documented approach to how you're going to scale. And in our world, it starts even with the hiring profile. We We know what a successful rep needs to look and feel like. We have, um, if you want to come work for Lacework, you actually go and do a personality uh, test because we know what, what traits we're looking for. At, and, uh, and what are those traits? Curiosity, um, coachability, um, very much in, in our world, um, not afraid of going out and kicking in the door to generate leads. Ideally, actually, you come out of an SDR background because we know that's how we generate a lot of our business, right? So we know exactly, and, and literally we have a scorecard, and if you score extreme here or there, that's a red flag you should go interview for. That's the first part of the playbook. Right. The second part of the playbook um, is, of course, who are we selling to? Who's the ideal customer profile? Again, coming back to prioritization. So even in, in, in Lacework, and you can argue with the funding we have, you could sit there saying, so surely you're going to go and target every company in, in the world. No, we're not. We, we know exactly what our ideal customer profile is. We actually have the ability uh, externally to go and instrument it and buy data and look at your cloud infrastructure from the outside. So I, I have pretty much every company on the planet mapped out with a score from one to seven. So I, I know what an organization, how likely they are to buy from me. Again, data is not always perfect, but it's probably 80 to 90% accurate. So the playbook actually also helps you prioritize who you want to go targeting in which order, because that's, that's where you have the highest chance of success. And then, of course, when you get into the process, then it, it's just a very clearly defined sales process. It's very clearly defined. Let's say you want to go, a, a, a go do a proof of concept. Well, here's the success criteria that we would like to drive. Here's, here's how we run the POC. Here's how we go and, and, and report back on the POC. At this point of the sales process, we ideally would like to get access to the economic buyer. So it's taking a lot of the, it sounds boring, but it's taking a lot of the artwork out of se selling, right? And it, it's trying to turn it into a science. It's trying to put a lot of, of what you need to go do into a structure and into a formula that you can go and repeat. And when you can repeat something, you can also measure on it. And then you come back to one of your earlier questions. How do you know whether you are on the right path when you're entering a new market? Well, if you're sticking to a process that you're repeating over and over and over again, you can actually compare saying, is our new activities here in, in the UK, is that going better or worse than, than, than what we're seeing in our home market, right? Right. Because we have, we have measure point, measurement points that are 
that are comparable and we follow the same process. Mm. So in my mind, my, the way I interpret the, the playbook is, is all about just having a well thought out game plan for how you're going to go do this and, and just being pretty strict actually in, in how you adhere to it. Three ways to fail in sales, brought to you by Memory. One, clog your pipeline. The fuller it is, the fuller you feel. Tip two, never use a plan. Predictability, eh, that's just boring. Three, forget the CRM. Probably sucks anyway. If you're ready to take control of your sales and make how you sell your competitive advantage, try Membrane for free today at membrane.com. So Jesper, here's a really stupid question. What exactly is the playbook? Is it the PowerPoint presentation that lives on your intranet, or is it how how is it documented? Good, good question. In in our world right now, it's a series of, of processes and and documents, right? It is a it, it's a for instance, it's the hiring profile, it's the job description, it's working with a set of recruiters that know our company, that knows our values, that know the kind of profile we we look for, right? It, it's so. At every step of the way, it's it's definitely documented. Uh, it is a set of of documents and, and and process descriptions, as you say. Yeah. But I would also say that's the tangible part of it, right? It, it's literally just yeah, it's written down. It can be a, a document or it can be a, a a presentation. But I actually find increasingly as well, it's also a mindset, um, because it it's a mindset of whether you believe in a structure and whether you are willing to stick to it, right? Right. Um, and and then you come back to personalities as well. Some people will listen to this and think that's the worst thing I've ever heard, right? I, I want to go and, and be creative. I want to go do different things every day. And and I want to be a, an artist and, and, and not be driven by this. And, and that's perfectly fine. But again, if we come back to what we said at the beginning, if you're looking at how you're deploying large amounts of capital, how you're scaling sales teams ultimately to hundreds of people, you cannot hire hundreds of artists. It's not going to scale, right? That it'll be... Uh, It'll be anarchy, and it'll not be it'll not be predictable. But the part is gonna be great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so, so I actually also think the playbook is is a mentality of of accepting that this is what is required to really go big. Does that make sense? Makes totally sense. It makes a lot of sense. I'm curious um, a little bit. Then, this playbook does it contain the rule sets also for? your geo expansion. So do you go to market? Do you take on a new market always the same way? Uh, yes, I. Um, so my experience having done this a couple of times is t- typically the first one or two markets, You, it, it's not super well documented, but even at the point we're at now and certainly in, in previous jobs, we would end up developing a game plan for what does it look like to enter a new market, right? Because you know that, hey, it takes you six months to set up the legal entity and get local contracts done. And so again, you, you actually end up developing a project plan and a checklist for what needs to happen as you go into a new market. So so yes, is the short answer that typically the first one or two countries you do, you, you base it on whatever the collective group have done in the past, but very quickly you realize oh, that was a bit difficult and we forgot three things in the process or whatever. Right? So <laughs> l- let's try to document what we just learned here. Uh, and and make sure that we do it even better next time. Right. Now, two Danes have told us this, Thomas, that you need to have a geo expansion playbook. We have Jesper on the call here 
And Jeppe Rindon from Playo told us the same thing. There you go. And when two Danes say the th- same thing, it's true. It's true. But again, I think it's all to knowing what Jeppe and, and, uh, and the Playo guys are doing, right? They, they're also scaling to a, a, a very big size relatively quickly, right? And I think they are, they're reaching the same conclusions, right? You, you cannot just wake up in the morning and then see how it goes, right? That, that's, that's not a recipe for success. Right, and then obviously in part of the playbook as well, um, sort of is also being being uh, quite structured around your capacity planning and and running your business based on numbers and facts, so that you constantly, to to our earlier point, you check in saying, are we actually meeting the productivity um, expectations we have? Because we're not going to hire the next five people if we cannot make. Uh, sort of the first cohort or the second cohort productive according to our plan. So the last part of of uh, of, uh, of the playbook is uh, is just constantly keeping an eye and and evolving your your productivity plan. And that probably brings me at least I don't know Thomas maybe you're thinking the same thing. Like there's another buzzword here floating around sales capacity. Yeah. So so um, we call it sometimes we call it the capacity plan, the productivity plan. Again, it's all about putting the math behind the expansion, right? And what, what, what it means in the way we work with it is, is just, first of all, you have to start and face reality saying, what productivity do your reps have right now? Um, and, and then let's say you want to double next year. It's pretty simple math, right? So you have 10 reps today that are doing 500K each. You want to go double uh, that business next year. That sounds like simple math, but then by the time you start breaking it down, well, first of all, when you hire a rep today, they will not be productive fully for six months. Right. If you're enterprise selling, it could be nine months, it could be 12 months. You need to, over time, constantly refine what you're observing in your world, right, and build that into the model. Um, you also vary the frequent mistake is I have 10 reps, I need to double. Okay, I hire 10 more reps. Good assumption. The problem is in our industry, the average churn rate of employees, certainly in sales, is, is at least 20%, right? Right. So you probably need to factor that into your planning as well, saying, first of all, ramp time. Second of all, what, what churn do you expect in that team? And then you start to, uh, to, to then say, okay, so now I'm going to add more salespeople. What does that do to the rest of the company around, uh, or the rest of the organization around me? Um, because most companies will say, well, every time I have a sales rep, I need, for every three sales reps, I need an SE. Okay, now you need to factor that into your sales, uh, into your financial model, right? Every time I hire three uh, sales reps, I need an SDR. Okay, now uh, we, we need to factor that into the model. Every time I have six or seven reps, I need a sales manager. So it, it's basically the capacity plan of the productivity plan is all about taking all of those components of the organization and putting them into a formula, basically. Right. So that when there is a board meeting and the board uh, comes out and, and, and says, exciting, we're going to double next year, you can actually go and break that down very quickly saying, okay, let, let's just see how we're going to do that, right? It means that we need to start hiring X amount of people now. It means that we're going to open so many recs for SDRs. It means that we're going to so, be, be so many SEs short. Um, and by the way, in, in, if, if they came and said that to me today, mid-October, that we want to double next year, 
you have a big problem because you're starting way, way, way too late. That, that's the other thing, of course, in SaaS, in um, ramp periods, building pipeline, closing deals, taking revenue. It, yeah, you cannot do that. So uh, the, the capacity model and productivity model is also a way of, of, of just having a realistic and honest conversation is, is, is what we're trying to do here realistic because we know the math, right? We can break it down. Right. Like, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, I've lived through this exercise somewhat successfully, probably with like a, you know, a, a nice portion of luck also in my previous life. What, what I always found interesting in this capacity planning is, especially if it's uncharted territory, it's like you said, you know, if, if an AE produces uh, half a million, then it, it's fair to assume that the next AE at full capacity will also produce the same. But sometimes it turns out that the reality is different, that deal sizes are different based on the market. I don't know if I'm going to be able to produce, you know, whatever the ACV is, 50K a year in the UK like I used to do in the US. Maybe I'll do less. Yeah. Like, how, how do you factor that in? Uh, very good question. Obviously, first of all, you don't know what you don't know. So uh, the, the fact alone that, that you're having the conversation, I, I think the best starting point, of course, will, will always be this is what we've seen up to now, that that's our baseline. Right. I would suggest if you're entering a new market, I would always say, take whatever productivity you have in your home market and, and deduct 20 or 25%, right? Assume just logically that you're going to be, it's going to be harder in, as you go into a new market. And then you will learn over time, right? When we sit here again a year from now, you will have data points from that market. You will, perhaps you were much better than you, you were in your home market. Who knows? But I think you, you have to have some rational assumptions that, that you build into this plan. Um, the one thing I do know is if you don't have a capacity sort of mindset in the business and, and if it's not embedded in your planning, running a sales organization in a world without that is very, very painful because then exactly what happens is that the board shows up one day saying, Congratulations, Daniel, you're going to double next year. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you have no idea whether that's even doable. And the, the one thing that will happen is Daniel is going to lose his job next year, right? Because you just signed up for a mission impossible. Right. So, so I think it's, it's, uh, it's a good way of having an honest conversation based on, on facts, right? Yeah. So a very short follow-up on the thing that you said before, um, saying that you were supposed to double in October was too late. So... When is the proper time of the year? If you want to say to your sales leader, I want you to double next year, what month are we talking about? In a perfect world, you tell me that almost at the beginning of this year, you tell me that in January or February um, of, of 2022. Okay. Because then let's take the example, right? I need to hire 10 reps. Okay. You tell me that in February. That means we start our job search for candidates in March. Search takes what? One, two months. Um, then certainly in the Nordics, fine, you have one month's notice period, that's easy. Um, if you're in Germany, you have three months notice periods, you're probably already late in the German market now. Um, but then in the Nordics, then especially you guys in Sweden, now you're off for six weeks. So, uh, and, and <laughs> <laughs> so, so that means that you, you come back in, uh, in mid-August, right? And then, then you join the company and now we start onboarding you and ramping you. Now you can actually have a chance of being successful, right? Because you will have had three or four months where you can build pipeline, you can learn the pitch, you can get up to speed with the offering. And that means come January next year, 
I have 10 reps that, that are reasonably up to speed. They're still not fully ramped. They probably haven't done their first deal yet, but at least now I have a chance. Okay. If you, if you do this in October, you can do the same math. You are seven, eight months late. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I think, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Jesper, but that essentially means that if you want to be, if you're listening to this and you want to be successful in a new GEO 2024, you basically need to start now to start hiring them. Yeah, 100%. Um, that, that actually is the conclusion. And then, of course, when you then think of, of this is a manageable problem if you're, if you're hiring five or 10 people. Right. Once you get to scale, once you get to, um, like we did with DocuSign, like we did with Okta, right? Once you start running a billion-dollar ARR business and you still want to grow 30%, the numbers get big very, very quick, right? And, and what it means is that you actually need to run a multi-year planning cycle, right? You, you need to, if you told your investors that you're going to grow 75 or 80% or 100% the next three years, you need to have a roadmap and a plan pretty much all the way, right? Right. Because you can fall behind very, very quickly. Yep. And then, of course, the two things that absolutely kills your plan is if you hire too late or if your attrition gets completely out of line, right? Because every time you, you attrit a person outside of, of what you factored in, you basically lose a year. Yeah, exactly. So the capacity planning and the productivity plan, in my opinion, is is the Bible for how you, you, you get to scale. So another thing, how do you support the different markets? What, what should be centralized versus localized, do you think? Yeah, that's a, that's a, a good question. Um, and I don't think that there are no um, easy answers to that. So, so what I've seen most, and again, you can, I, I can argue both, both sides of this equation, right? Uh, I, I, I think things where you have, where you can learn and, and replicate from each other very quickly, like an SDR function, I think there is benefit in having close to each other, right? There are people early in their career, they probably need a lot of coaching. Um, there's, there's actually value in listening to what the person next to you is saying, because it's the same pitch, same message, oh, and oh, and oh, again. I, I would tend to favor those in a central location, in, in relatively few locations. Um, same, of course, if, if you're selling a, a relatively simple product that, um, that doesn't include a lot of technical proof of concepts and so on, you can probably do that from an, an inside sales operation, right? So um, the, the, the simpler, the lower value your product is, you may be actually able to go be super successful across all of Europe or the, or the world with one or two inside sales operations. The more you go up market, the more you, you start to say, well, unfortunately, if I'm going to sell to a German large enterprise, they want to see me in person, right? So now you have to go build that field sales. And with the field sales, you probably need a field marketeer that speaks the language and in the market. You probably need a, a pre-sales if you're selling a technical product, definitely in the market. Um, and, and ultimately, again, if you're dealing with bigger customers, you probably need professional services or CS to be along with you in the market. So uh, that's sort of how I've seen it play out. Yeah, I think we got uh, a lot of great insights here. I mean, it um, can really tell that you have been around the block for a while and and, and gone through these exercises. Are, are you referring to my gray hair? Is that what you said politely? At, uh... <laughs> I don't think you are that gray haired, not the, if you compare to Daniel here. So. Jesper, you have hair. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right back at me. Okay. Uh, so, where were we? Yeah, so looking now, 
what is in the future for for lace work and uh, and for you in the role you have? So the future at lace work, we're, we're building something special here. We uh, we just uh, uh, appointed a new CEO, uh, Jay Parikh. He used to run all of um, technical infrastructure. He basically managed thirty thousand people at Facebook. So. We have one of the race technologists in the world leading our, our company. We're going to be building out the most awesome automated cloud security platform on the planet. Um, and then obviously, as we talked about, we have the money and the funding and the playbook and, and, the, and the math um, and the processes to go and scale it out. So our ambition is to go and, and build one of the sort of largest security providers uh, on the planet. And, and that's what I love doing. So. So that's what the immediate future is. Um, Security is sexy these days. Security is super sexy. Obviously, we, we live in interesting times uh, with what's going on in the world. But uh, the area we're in, it, we're kind of fortunate in the sense that um, with, with more sort of hostility in the world, the one area you, you don't want to save on is probably information security. So uh, so, so that that's certainly helping us. Um, so that's my day job. That's what I'm going to be focused on. And then... On the side, I still love helping and advising SaaS businesses uh, that are smaller and perhaps earlier states to to t- gain from some of those learnings I've spent 20 years uh, picking up over, over the world. Yeah, and is there something that you are looking for right now besides the perfect golf round? No, I don't know. I'm one of these sad people. I I love what I do. My my uh, my job and what I do here is as much as my hobby as anything else. So, do you need a certain person on your team that you would like to make a Sort of a shout out. I always need good people. I need good people for my own team. I need good people for my uh, my board teams. Great salespeople, great technical expertise. You can never have enough of those. Um, so no, I uh, people listening are welcome to tap me up on LinkedIn and, and connect with me. And uh, that's part of, uh, of of I I think I also want to call out what you guys are doing. I think is really good to uh, to go and and form connections between the Nordic. SaaS industry, there's so many cool companies coming out um, and there's so much great knowledge that we need to share. And, and I think your your forum and your way of doing it is uh, is very nice. So thank you. Awesome. Hey, I wanted to ask you, it just popped in my mind, completely unrelated <laughs> from one sales uh, person to another salesperson. Do you think sales can be taught? Can anybody be a good salesperson? <laughs> That's a good question. I I think you can teach sales yes but actually and, and we come back to what we talked about earlier why we do a, a personality assessment i think actually what decides whether you'll be really successful or not is actually more your inner drive it's your it's your sort of willingness to overcome resistance if if doing pipeline generation in this market is not easy right you you get hung up on a million times you get rejected a million times some people can live with that and thrive with that. Others can't. I think that's very hard to teach someone. I think that's more whether you have the inner drive, the persistence, the the stamina to go and, and fight through that. So I think that's very hard to teach people. Either you have that or you don't. But actually the sales process and the pitch and so on, any, anyone can learn that. Right. I always look at it when, when you look at people. I look at it at a very simple skill and will um, sort of matrix, right? And reality is that you can have the most capable person on the planet that's read every sales book and can can run a, a perfect sales campaign. But if you don't have the will, 
it doesn't matter. You're not going to be successful, right? Hire for attitude, train for skill or whatever they say. Amen to that. Exactly. So is there anyone that you think we would benefit from having on the show here that have other learnings or, or other things that we should share with the community? Um, I actually think where I am today, you, you guys should speak with Keep It. It's a, it's a great story. We uh, Keep It used to be a sort of hosting provider, hosting websites and so on. They had a storage product on the site. We, uh, we sold off the hosting business. We decided to double down on the SaaS business and, and it's going really well. We, we just finished the year with super impressive growth rates. So um, not a lot of people have, have sort of picked up on, on this little hidden gym here. So, uh, so who's, the, who's the woman or man at Keep It we should get hold of? I, I'll, I'll go uh, talk to them right now. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's two great founders here, Morton and Frederick. Uh, so uh, uh, it, it wouldn't be fun to have both of them on. They're, they, they're great people. So uh, I'll go uh, remind them now that uh, their phone will be ringing soon. <laughs> okay. Very good. Cool. And uh, yeah, I think that's it. Uh, really nice speaking to you, Jesper. And I, I think we learned, learned a lot uh, and um, appreciating that you took your time and we're looking forward to do more things together um, in the future. Likewise. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Take care now. Bye. So Daniel, what are your takeaways from, from the episode here today? It's always interesting to hear how the big guys do it in the space. You know, obviously Jesper has represented some some really large companies here and it, it's always nice to take a page from their playbook. But I think considering where we are at the end of the year, one thing I'd like to highlight and that I always live by is recruiting. He talks about, you know, how you always have to be in recruitment mode and how you have to recruit in due time. And that also goes hand in hand when you're expanding into a new market, like people underestimate, you know, how to recruit, when to recruit and how to enable those people. So recruitment is a key element in, in, in growing internationally. So I, I thought that was really good that he highlighted uh, here at the end. What about you, Thomas? Well, one thing is, is again, focus, uh, something that is reoccurring theme here in the podcast, but, but also how these larger companies uh, set up these playbooks to support how they go internationally and uh, I think that's also something that smaller companies also can learn to sort of more organize uh, how they go about going to new territories and so so um, yeah interesting discussion a lot of good insights from from Jesper today definitely it, it seems like uh, for these big ones nothing is done by by a hunch speaking about hunch sometimes we do things by a hunch here and gut feeling but uh, there's a couple of things that are well planned in the books obviously the sassiest event coming up here in april tell us a little bit more about that for the second year in a row we are arranging the largest sas conference here in the nordics uh, we will be 1200 participants it's going to be two full days of sessions networking and also evening activities so we can have some fun together there will also be a day zero with some interesting side events and we will also bring our networks together for instance the CEO network that will meet the evening before because that's also something that we have a lot of focus on now so maybe you can say a few words about the CEO network then yeah definitely so the CEO network some of you if you're an avid listener here you know about it right now it's, it's a peer-to-peer -peer community the purpose here is that we collect b2b SaaS CEOs to help each other with real cases, real opportunities, but also to leverage each other's network. And all of these sessions are moderated by us here at SAS Nordic. And we still have openings. If you are 
looking to join this network, you need to head over to sasnordic.com. And if you go to the community tab, you'll find the CEO network there and just follow the instructions there. But it, it's a great community for us to help each other out. You know, it's learning from one operator to another operator. I don't think there's any better way. Absolutely. And there you also can find the executive network. So if you work for a SaaS company that has above 2 million euros in ARR, you have nine different types of groups that you can join everything from sales marketing to product and finance and so on. Also, there is a link to the Slack community that is open for everyone that is working for a B2B SaaS company here in the Nordics and the Baltics. Uh, so there's a lot of different opportunities there. And um, lastly, w- what I would like to highlight also is that if you listen to the podcast, if you enjoy it, if you have any ideas of topics or people that you should we should have on the show, please reach out. You can DM us on LinkedIn or send your email to contact at sasnordic.com. So with that, we wish you a good end of the year and see you soon again. Take care.